This afternoon, to have a walk with with Ayananda Bodhi and have a talk afterwards with Ayasantajita. Uh, we've known each other like 18 or 19 years. Is that working? Can, can people hear okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Just checking. I think that was good, right? So just yeah, it's, it's a good play. <laughs> so just checking. Yeah. Yes, I think 18 or 19 years. That's been like some, yeah. yeah, about that long. Mm-hmm. So long time span of of friendship and sharing community life together. So it's lovely to be here and to see they're flourishing in this place and see how well supported they are. And uh, Jayati, to see her in her transformational process. <laughs> and, uh, and also to see all of you come. And some of you have come from far away, so it's just wonderful. Um, it feels like a very uh, potent and auspicious time. Um, Monday, uh, we had the Oposita ceremony to celebrate the full moon. And this particular full moon was the celebration of Sangamita, the Arahant Sangamita coming to Sri Lanka and bringing the Bodhi tree limb. And when she did that, she also was able to ordain many other women in becoming bhikkhunis. And what I just learned recently was that all bhikkhunis that exist now can be traced back to her. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And so the, the fully, the gone forth, um, the presence of women who have completely gone forth and who've, who have the Dhammavinya as described by the Buddha can be traced back to this one particular person who was uh, a completely awake and and committed to sharing her wisdom with others. Tomorrow is the solstice. It's the time when the day changes and the, we are beginning to get a little bit more light. Uh, the days grow longer, the nights grow shorter. And where I live in Colorado, it's really striking because I live at the foot of a mountain. And so around 4 o'clock, or probably by now it's like 3.35 or 40 the sun dips over the end of the mountain and the temperature drops mm, 15 or 20 degrees. Mm-hmm. And, and then not long after that, maybe an hour afterward, it's just dark. So the light comes late in the morning and leaves early in the evening and we have a long night and it's cold, you know. Mm-hmm. So long, cold nights and short, chilly days. So this is a shift in the season. And it's one that I appreciate. Um, and I appreciate it because I spend a lot of time outside, I spend a lot of time in nature, and so the cycles of the time, of the, of the seasons, and of the moon, and of the land affect me when I am in uh, contact with them. I can feel the difference. I wanted to speak tonight about a topic that I've only spoken about once before, and that was on Wednesday night. And um, it's to do with uh, awakening in our times, you know, how to use our Dharma practice with what's going on in the world around us. And to begin to open up to the truth of what's happening and to find a way of navigating that so that our hearts open, our minds open, and we are staying present and connected in our Dharma practice, in our communities, and engaged in the world. Um, Leaving England and coming to the United States was really quite um, 
a big change, and for quite a few years. I think that actually qualifies as an understatement. You know, it was like it was a huge it was a huge change, and so I didn't have a whole lot of bandwidth to deal with much of anything other than just getting through the day and trying to figure out what was next steps because. To go from being in a community of 20 years and enmeshed in a, a sangha of sisters and being connected to a huge infrastructure and then all of a sudden being on my own and having to figure everything out, you know, was just, a plus the kind of shock of just leaving the community and the effect of all of that. So my energy was very much involved with just basic stuff. But as it takes time, you know, it's taken me several years, three years, three and a half years, four years. And now I feel like, okay, I have my body energy and my mind available. Where do I want to place my attention so that it feels congruent with my values? Now, one of the things that I have been very conscious of is, is that one of the reasons why I have stayed a nun is because of my connection with the land. And the reason why that is, is because the land, more than any other single thing in the world, is my access point to Dhamma. My relationship with nature is where I can drop in to a, a mind which is open and spacious and connect with an awareness that pervades time and space. And as I do that, I get both more sensitive to what's going on around me as well as feel the kind of calling to speak up and speak out for um, what doesn't have a voice and to mobilize and help people find a way of coming together when before we've been in little kind of isolated pockets trying to figure out stuff on our own with um, subject material that's actually quite a bit bigger than any of us can navigate by ourselves. So as I come into a place where I have my, my energy back, my capacity to bring my attention, one of the things that's been very, very um, alive in my own mind is the magnitude of the effect of climate change and what we are facing as a global community with our planet undergoing rapid changes um, as a result of carbon emissions and the other deforestation and uh, things that have happened as a result of our world gone slightly berserk around consumerism, around greed, around acquisition of territory and power without visioning or keeping into mind how this is going to affect uh, people or living systems or just the possibility to be able to sustain life on this planet in an, a not very long time frame. So the information and the magnitude of what we're dealing with um, touches me and um, you know the level of grief, the level of overwhelm, the level of absolutely how on earth do you wrap your mind around this which is so much bigger than any individual person or community or state or country and um, you know asking you know what what is needed now and what can I do to show up with that and certainly you know what I know from practice is is that what's needed is to meet things where they're at and so when I feel overwhelmed by grief or overwhelmed by overwhelm or feeling like what, what I'm dealing with, what we're dealing with now is so incredibly complicated and so potentially catastrophic that it's actually hard to bring care and attention to this topic because there's almost like there's no place to land it. It's like my body's not big enough to hold it. And with the feelings that I had to navigate coming from England, what would often happen was I'd go into the Garden of the Gods, which is this natural rock formation that's really within 10 minutes from my doorstep. 
and I would let my body melt into these rocks that are 160 million years old. And as I let my body drop into these rocks and melt into these rocks, I relax any sense of me being here doing something. And as I relax the sense of me located in time and space, engaged in activity, then what I am able to relax into is a field of awareness that includes my body, heart, and mind, but is absolutely not limited to it. And this field of awareness is something that, as far as I can sense and tell, pervades time and space. It pervades everything. And as I relax into that, there's nothing that I experience that is not included and held and can be known in that mind. So this dropping in to something which is universal, which is unlimited, which is inclusive, which is what I understand the Dhamma to be about, gives me the capacity to meet what is arising. It gives me capacity to feel the sadness, the grief, the overwhelm, and to let them be part of something that is much bigger than they are. So I'm delighted to see that you come and, and take the refuges and the precepts, because the refuge is a way of formulating our commitment to access that. And the precepts create a container that gives us a platform and a foundation so that we can practice that. So that the things that normally occlude our access are reduced and set aside so that we have more capacity to know and abide in the Dhamma. Now, just being able to deal with the feelings that arise is a step, but it's not a solution. So when the feelings of enormous grief or the magnitude of overwhelm or like the catastrophic consequences of what we are potentially entering into, then feel contextualized in this awareness that pervades time and space then I can begin to apply uh, critical thinking and discernment to how is it that we've gotten ourselves into this situation and what is needed now. Now, I am not a historian and I am not extremely knowledgeable in all of the causes and conditions that have come about that have given rise to this circumstance. But what I do see is is that there's a couple of predominant themes that keep arising. And one of them is, is that our world has been out of control with greed, without checks and balances in it, and now the checks and balances are coming. The consequences of our actions are being delivered in terms of the effect that it's having on other species, on ecosystems, on weather patterns and eventually is going to impact people and other living beings' capacity to sustain life unless things change. And so when I look at what is needed to change, what I see is is that as a civilization, as a planet, as a global community, we need to shift our reliance on fossil fuel We need to establish more sense of basic needs of people being met across the globe because when people are so poor and so desperate, the choice about what kind of energy they use is not their priority. 
when we are able to attend to nature, stabilize it, and begin to, or you know, um, repair some of the damage that we've done, where the trees can be reforested and places where carbon cycles can be back in a natural cycle, then these are the kinds of of conditions that are going to give rise to making a check on the out-of-control movement towards climate change. But as jo Ma- Joanna Macy was talking about in, in her work around the Great Turning, just simply checking the shift is not going to be enough. What we're going to need to do is we're going to need to create new structures and new ways of doing things that are not based on greed and consumerism, not based on um, the idea that more is not enough, but how is it that we can change our values to move towards what is sustainable, what is life-affirming, what is, uh, has the best interests of all people, all living beings at heart, and is actually something that can uh, continue after many generations. And those values have never been part of the consideration of how we measure growth and how we measure the gross national product. So when Ajahn Amaro was visiting Bhutan many, many years ago, Ajahn Amaro and I think Ajahn Sumedho, they went to Bhutan, and they came back and they said that in the country of Bhutan, they have a different standard of measurement. Rather than gross national product, they have gross national happiness. And I don't know how the what how they what the index is of happiness, but but I I I rejoice that as a country they put that as a priority. <coughs> And let that be their measure of success. So when we're looking at what we're dealing with, it isn't just a question of recycling light bulbs or changing our light bulbs to LED and recycling plastic and glass and aluminum cans and and being careful how many times we go out to fast food restaurants because of all of the plastic that they give us. It's not a question of what we can do individually, though that's extremely important that we begin to look at that. And it isn't only a question of what we can do as communities coalescing together. What is needed is how, as a, as a, as a planet, we can begin to start addressing these topics and make it a priority to start shifting a a civilization which has been built upon fossil fuel and change it so that we have clean energy that is the basis of how it supports our lights and clean energy supports our engines and clean energy or other substances that are not based in, in byproducts of oil are the building materials of our houses, what is in our clothes, the substances of our medicine, what helps us grow our food, the, the, you know, the, the, the substances that, that surface our roads. It's like it's everywhere. So we're not in a trivial circumstance. It's quite deep. And every time I touch into the magnitude of how deep it is, I keep coming back to a range of feelings that then I need to go back to the rocks and drop into this space of awareness to hold. Because every time I touch another layer, there's a whole other uh, depth of feelings of grief and sadness and helplessness or hopelessness or feelings of uh, fear about what is coming. And every time these feelings come, I am not effective in thinking and speaking and acting until I attend to this stuff. Now, I can really understand why when people do not have a resource that allows them to feel what they're feeling and neither dismiss it nor identify with it, then the system can just shut down. 
So the Dharma practice that we have access to, the depth of our capacity to understand what refuge actually is and go there, gives us the resource to meet this and then go to the next level, which is, is that in addition to slowing down, to changing structures, we need to use the intensity of what we are navigating to continue to bring the critical nature of our practice as the central anchoring point from which all of this is returning to and coming from. And part of what has happened for me when I spend time in nature with the rocks and the bears and the hummingbirds and the grasses and the flowers is I see that the sense of who I am as being a separate individual lump is a configuration of my perception. It actually is not a reality. It's not a tangible thing that I can locate and touch and refer back to as reliable. It's something that arises in circumstance. And as there is more and more a sense of there is only awareness and consciousness that pervades time and space, nothing and no one is excluded from that then there is a natural response to do whatever can be done to stop suffering, to release suffering, to ease suffering, to create conditions that support life. Now, coming from the tradition that we have all come from, There is a very strong encouragement not to get involved in politics. That politics was somehow seen as a complete energy drain and infinite and um, not something that was suitable for monastics. And what this whole circumstance is doing is really putting me in the position of questioning what that means in terms of our contemporary situation and what is needed now. Because in the time of the Buddha. Everyone contemplated death as a normal part of what was considered a suitable reflection, as a daily reflection that everyone is subject to death. No one is exempt from that. But the time of the Buddha, they were not dealing with a circumstance where what they were looking with as a catastrophic amount of death in a very short period of time that was not leaving anybody as safe or exempt from it. So it wasn't just the existential process of life and death as a natural occurring phenomena that we have to come to understand. But this is putting us in a situation where we're not just only dealing with the imminence of our own death, but of so much other also dying. And not dying in natural lifespans, but dying as the direct result of influences that we as human beings have directly contributed to creating. It's a different circumstance. And as a result of it being a different circumstance, it feels like a different response is required. So I am committed to meditating and keeping precepts and living with integrity and speaking the truth. And I'm also committed to speaking out and showing up and doing things when I can find what are suitable actions that I can be involved in that begin to start changing the landscape of the local place where I'm living and the community that I'm part of and the global values that people hold. Now, 
in recently I've been looking on the internet and reading stuff and looking at YouTube things and articles and it was interesting for me when Bill McGibbon was asked, you know, what do we do? You know, how do we how do we respond to that? And his response was is that eighty percent of efforts need to be local and twenty percent of efforts need to be global in terms of recycling, of reducing usage of energy, of of wearing things longer so we're not buying stuff sooner in terms of building bike paths and community gardens and building communities that are speaking to each other and processing things together and finding solutions together. And moving out of the value that more is not enough, which is the value of gross national product, which our country absolutely worships and into a value system that is based on life-affirming values, based on community, based on uh, decentralizing energy sources, based on sharing resources, based on seeing that people get what they need. Because when people don't get what they need, they're not in a place to be thinking about this stuff acting on this stuff, doing basic kinds of actions that's going to contribute to health. They're just in a place of having to do whatever they can in order to survive. Now, one of the things that I'd like to talk about, and I didn't talk about this the last time I spoke about it. Well, actually, I did mention it, but I didn't go into much depth. Is is that what we have lived through, coming through Amravati and Chithurst, I have not seen in other um, monastic monastics that I've met, in terms of, as a community of women, coalescing and finding our ground in a circumstance that had a lot of blessings in it and quite a few significant challenges in it, and being able, with an extraordinary diverse group of women, to find ways where we could actually support each other and include the diversity that we had and give uh, space for the various different views and opinions and stay moving towards action that was congruent with our values. Now, this took us decades as a community to figure out how to do this. And it took... Uh, an enormous amount of work and also a phenomenal amount of suffering before we were even motivated to do that work. But one of the things that I came out of that with was the appreciation that I have never met any people who are more equipped to deal with what we are dealing with in our contemporary world than nuns. And there's something about what we were, we were put into that required or asked or invited us to stay in relationship with what was transcendent and absolutely not lose contact with what was imminent. To hold the ultimate and bring it through our bodies into relationship with what was present. And because of the complexity of what we were navigating with the monks and the circumstance and all the rest of that, do that in times of adversity. And so part of my own journey, which has not been easy, like nobody else's journey has been easy, I don't think there's any one of us for whom our journey has been easy, I have questioned again and again and again whether staying a nun makes any sense at all. Does it make any sense at all to live this life? And part of that has been because I've been living in Colorado Springs, which is not renowned for its liberal values and ideas towards uh, people. And it's not a Buddhist community, per se. And so the support hasn't been that abundant locally. And so as an alms mendicant, where I'm totally dependent on others for basic needs, it is really um, activating about how this life 
can be lived in our contemporary world and what makes sense. But every day I go into the garden of the gods. Every day. When it's minus temperatures out, I go into the garden of the gods. When it's 100 degrees out, I go into the garden of the gods. When it's pouring, when it's snowing, when it's blowing a gale, I go into the garden of the gods. Because the, the value that I experience of having regular access in contact with this mind that opens to awareness that pervades time and space absolutely far exceeds any minor inconvenience of physical discomfort to know that. The more that I know that, the more that I'm able to access that not limited to that particular place. It's like I get it in my body what this is, what it feels like, how to know it, how to let it be something that is part of my life and how to let that be the place that I'm referencing when I'm speaking and acting and deciding things. It's the garden, it's the nature, it's the mountains that have held me and said, it's up to you. And it's been the garden and the mountains where I have found the answer, yes, this makes sense. Because I don't know other teachings or trainings or containers or lifestyles that model not only a life of simplicity and renunciation, but also the capacity to hold open the depth of spiritual understanding and bring it into relationships and finding structures and finding forms that make sense, more so than what I've experienced in the community of sisters. Now, the eco-movement has not dialed on to the fact that this is actually incredibly powerful. They haven't figured it out yet. And I don't know how to bridge that so that they might. But what I'm saying is to everybody here that a group of people who are supporting monastics, who are interesting in creating a training opportunity for others to do this is absolutely invaluable as an essential piece of what is needed to train people's capacity to be able to respond to the magnitude of what it is that we're dealing with right now. Now, having lived in Colorado Springs and meeting some of the other bhikkhunis and spending time at the other viharas that I've been at, there isn't any other group of bhikkhunis that is better situated than these bhikkhunis here to actually create a training monastery. Nobody. I know. And so if this is something that feels to you to be alive and active, then investing in mechanisms that support these bhikkhunis to do what they are longing to do, to create a training monastery, is an active way of creating conditions that support a whole mind-body approach that is then able to respond to this situation that we are in. It's going to take everything we have to change gears. And all of us can bring everything we have in our commitment to our own awakening and our commitment to creating environments where others can also awaken and in our capacity to support contexts that allow a depth of transformation to take place that then prepares people for what we are facing now.
Now, obviously, everybody in the world is not going to become a nun or a monk. That's not what I'm advocating. But not to lose sight of the potency of what is happening when women are training in this way. It's powerful. It's not always simple, and it doesn't always go absolutely straightforward. You know, as a community of nuns in England, it took the community about 20 years before we actually began to feel like we coalesced, or at least my perception was that we were coalescing. But when we did, we were a formidable force to reckon with. <laughs> Absolutely formidable. And not formidable because we were scary, formidable because we were so strong and loving and clear and able to speak our truth in relationship, in times of adversity, even when we were standing the possibility of losing everything. Absolutely everything. So the Dhamma helps us meet what is arising. The Dhamma gives us context for considering the causes and effects of how we are in the situation. The Dhamma supports us to look at how we can change, influence change, that releases or reduces or eliminates the causes that is causing the suffering that we are in and the suffering that is coming down the pipeline. The Dhamma is what allows us to feel our connection with life, with all beings, and allows us to move past a worldview that prioritizes myself or my family or my clan or my village or my street or my religion above others. And when we know the value of life, when we know the value of love, when we know the value of our own body, heart, and mind opening and being at peace, there isn't anything else I want to do than help create the causes and conditions for others to experience this and for this world to remain a place where practice and living is possible. It trumps everything. So I um, I offer these words as reflection, and when we do the chanting in the beginning of offering a Dhamma talk, implicit in that is the invitation to listen with an open heart and not to believe anything that I've said. <laughs> but to check it out and see if what is said resonates as true. And if it resonates as true, reflect on it. Consider it. If it doesn't resonate as true, then just leave it. Nothing to do with it. If it's not true, just leave it alone. So in offering this reflection, there's an invitation to consider, is it true for you? If it's not true for you, leave it alone.
So I pause here and invite comments or questions or yeah. just a little uh, acknowledgement of this talk. Questions or anything, any reflections? I'd like to share. This is a good time. Off my window. I'm Amanda. Um, do you have some practical suggestions for day-to-day life where you could live um, in the midst of all this? craziness um, or in the midst of just having to be out of connection in some ways with the earth because you're driving and in city life like what are some ways to live in connection with what you were describing about that refuge that nature can provide you how to tap into it inside of yourself um i you know i live in a city but i'm right next to this powerful place you know so what i would suggest for me, like if I was living in the city, I would go find powerful places. So here, a block away is the ocean. That's a powerful place. And I wouldn't put my backs into the rocks, I'd put my backs into the sand and I'd go in the water, you know? Um, And so, nature exists everywhere. And there are certain places that are more potent than others. Lulu and I were just at this place I'd never been to before, so I was born in California. I never knew it was existed before Nevada, as we were coming down. Olin Pali. It's fabulous. It's a powerful place. It's not very far away from here. So, I mean, for me, because my system is so sensitized to nature, it's, it's critical that I have regular contact with powerful places. And, you know, people have been bugging me for years now to move into a place where there was more lay support. And it's like, I prefer the rocks, you know? And so um, I think what's needed is to find something that makes sense for where you're living and what's close in terms of how is it that you just drop in. Now, for me, it's nature. For other people, it can be qigong or yoga or chanting together, or something like that, where it isn't the the physical contact with trees, but it's through connecting energetically with a life force that they can then feel, and then they can sense that that pervades everything. You live in San Francisco. I don't think there's a garden of the gods within 10 minutes walk of your house. (laughs) In fact, I'm pretty positive that there isn't. But there may be some really big, old trees There might be some strong rocks. And so what I found with trees is is that they're extremely generous, but they're not at all intrusive. And so they're happy to give support, but they're not going to give it to you unless you ask. Mm. And so, you know, I'm always pushing my body into trees or rocks or my feet (laughs) in water or, you know, my hands in fur, whatever I can do, wherever, you know, whatever I can do. So that I can, I can, I can feel that, and then also learning how to protect because my sensitive system is is very sensitive, and I get blasted by some of the stuff that's going on. So you know where my hermitage is was in the flight path of the helicopters doing rescues from the floods, and 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 where my hermitage is was a mile and a half away from a place that got wiped out from a flood. And so for a month, the floods, the flash flood sirens were going off. So I wasn't traumatized by what happened. I was in a place that was safe and on high ground. But I was picking up on the trauma that was in the field 
and having to discharge trauma regularly because I was, I was in a field where it was present. So I've had to learn to just recognize if this is what's happening, this is the way I need to respond to it and get tools and skills and have access to resource to just deal with whatever's coming up. But I would, it would take an awful lot for me to choose volitionally to move into a city because it doesn't work very well for me. So, you know, in your own living spaces, you can create sanctuary and help let that, that help hold. I don't know if that helps. I thought you'd do the anchor to basic goodness again. So, not the, the nature, but thank you. That was great, because I was like, okay, I know it's inside of me. I don't have to just find it in nature. So that's where I was expecting you to go with it, but that was a lot more <laughs> that you just did. <laughs> so. You're not the one-hit wonder to, you know, the self-awareness that is, um, you know, what you were referencing instead hold, you know, so dear the values that, you know, are the root of, of the suffering. So when I'm in a position of duality, then I'm contributing to the duality. When I'm resting in a space of awareness that's embracing, then views that are um, supported with uh, greed or anger or hatred can land there. They don't. I'm not in opposition with them. So the way I communicate is through embodying, rather than communicating verbally. And when there's a connection with a person, there's a lot more capacity to share than when there's opposition. Easier said than done. <laughs> but it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much for your Dharma talk. I'm very impressed. This is um, it's more like uh, your uh, talk is more like metaphysic, metaphysical approach. So um, my question is, the environmental issue is really a critical one these days. And then have you had any chance to meet environmentalists or politicians who really, you know, emphasize we need to protect, you know, our planet? And then how do you think about if we apply, tell them your way, how much they can understand and then practically uh, your way can be influential to them? Um. Politicians and hardcore environmentalists have not been the crowd that I've been running with recently. I've been running with rocks and, and trying to just get some ground so that the basic kind of needs that I have can be met. So, but I'm shifting into a situation where I have more energy and capacity for talking with these people mm -hmm. and looking at you know, different ways of, of exploring mm -hmm. what we can do. And also, you know, because where I live in Colorado Springs, <coughs> excuse me, there's there's a huge Christian. Um, the 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 focus on the family is based in Colorado Springs, mm -hmm. and other many 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 Christian groups are based in Colorado Springs, and I haven't yet ventured into this territory, which feels a little bit scary, mm -hmm. you know, just try and talk to these people and see if there's any place of meeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ayananda Bodhi was just saying today, she was filling me in on some of the philosophical background that they're coming from, which sort of um, suggests that the possibility that this is going to be easy or straightforward or collaborative is not so great. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I'm still willing to try mm-hmm. and see if there's any place of meeting and what that's like. But what I, I, what I know is, is that when a person is really cemented into their view, mm-hmm. it, they, it doesn't usually shift from logic. Mm-hmm. It has to shift from consciousness. And sometimes a person's consciousness can shift when they're in direct contact with another consciousness. Not always. But one can create or bring forward that possibility mm-hmm. and know that consciousness shifts when it's in the presence of other consciousness and leave it up to circumstance to see what happens. So I'm, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about, you know, for a... <coughs> like a large number of people who don't have a spiritual practice, mm-hmm. how I've been asking myself, how, how would it be possible to convey some of these concepts where they don't have the experience of sitting still and reflecting on the breath or whatever? And I have some ideas about things to try. Mm-hmm. I have no idea if they'll be effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. We could maybe do one more question and then. Any question or comment? Yeah, I'm just wondering, kind of a little bit following on from what you were saying, um, how much interfaith dialogue is there concerning the environment? You know, I don't, I don't know, but I just found an interfaith website that was designed to support different religious groups coming together to support the environment. Mm. <coughs> Seems like that's a it's growing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think as people are actually beginning to dial into the reality of what we're dealing with, then there's more and more linking and collaborating and stuff that's coming up from various different places. Mm. But myself, because it's just, you know, it's just been the last six months where I've had any capacity at all to actually start thinking about this stuff Mm. in terms of what I can do or what's happening, I'm not that well informed with what's going on. Mm. Because it seems like that would be quite an empowering way to pull a good number of people together. Yeah. Communities together. Exactly. And so one of the things that I'm thinking of doing, because I keep asking, okay, so I love the rocks, that's clear, Mm -hmm. but what am I doing in Colorado Springs? And I thought, well, maybe what I'm doing in Colorado Springs is being a voice for the interfaith, whatever, to coalesce around this Mm -hmm. topic. You know? I think in the long run, your way is really can be powerful mm-hmm. because it can move human mind. Mm-hmm. This uh, air pollution actually resulted from our greed, you know, craving, all these, you know, you know, human mind feeling, and then we need to really purify and then you know can change our mind, and then then Buddhist way can apply and then reflect something. And my experience is, is that it doesn't happen fast. And so even people who are in a monastery who are completely committed to this process and ordained and have precepts and have you know, reflections and have retreats and have feedback for all of us, it has not been fast. And so it, ha- it happens. You know, I have seen radical shifts in all of us, and it's not fast. So what I'm also aware of is, is that it's important to show up, to do the best we can from wherever we are for as long as we can and keep coming back to the Dhamma as our basis, as what nourishes us and as the place that we're acting from. Because I don't know the results, but that's not the reason why I don't stop doing what I can. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.